morning everyone. Hope you're enjoying your 4th of July weekend. I know I plan on firing up the grill later this afternoon, cooking up some burgers and dogs with my family. I hope your weekend is a relaxing one. You have a chance to recharge your physical, emotional, and spiritual batteries and get ready for the week ahead. And I hope this morning's message will help you in that regard. In Psalm 119, verse 130, it says, The unfolding of God's word brings light. Like the headlights on your car at night, understanding, unwrapping, unfolding the truth of God's word prepares us to travel the road ahead. And God's word gives us light and guidance and direction. So let's listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning and ask him for the guidance we need as we look into scripture together. We are now into our third week on a portion of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God. It's Jesus' manifesto about the nature of God's kingdom and how we're supposed to respond. It's the longest portion of the Bible devoted exclusively to the words of Jesus. And we're only looking at the first 12 verses, which are called the Beatitudes because each one is about a type of blessing God gives to his people. And today we're on the second one, verse four, which reads, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says there's a kind of mourning that is blessed. And that's kind of hard for me to understand. I mean, how can the words mourning and blessed even appear in the same sentence? Uh, it just seems wrong to me. I mean, a blessing from Jesus, that sounds like something you'd really want. I mean, you'd want that in your life. Whatever's going to bring you God's blessing, you'd want that. But no one ever who is going through mourning and grief like this would say, you know, bring it. You know, give me more grief. I want to go after as much grief as possible. I mean, if you were in a receiving line at a funeral and you stepped up to the, the grieving family and you decided to quote this verse to them, uh, you might get slapped across the face because it would sound like sound like you're kind of mocking or minimizing their grief. Nobody feels blessed in that situation and you'd be wrong to try and kind of lay it on them. So like with much of what Jesus taught, we have to dig a little deeper. Uh, Jesus often combines these contrasting ideas, puts them together to force us to think. Frequently, the disciples were kind of left scratching their heads after Jesus's sermons. Sometimes Jesus's words are very simple, direct, completely transparent, crystal clear, don't need any interpretation at all. But other times his words force us to think a little deeper and wrestle with the meaning of what he's trying to say. And this is one of those times. The word for mourn that Jesus uses here in the original Greek, it's a broad term, can describe kind of a wide spectrum of very intense emotions, as lament, crying out, bewailing, and grieving. It's one of the deepest emotions of the heart and soul produced by a great sense of loss. Grief always has to do with a sense of loss. And the Bible actually talks about four different kinds of grief related to different kinds of losses in life. And I'm only gonna talk about three of them today because I think they're the ones that are most important for us in our current life situation where we really need the light of God's word to shine. The first kind of mourning is just the most common. It's the grief we experience when something or someone more likely is taken away from us, whether through death or for some other reason. 
Experiencing this kind of loss and grief, it's inevitable. Everybody experiences it. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes the mourning, but sooner or later, everybody must pass through it because grief is just a normal part of not just the Christian experience, it's universal. It makes no distinction between race and creed or color or geography. Grief touches young and old, rich and poor, male and female. No one is exempt. Everybody grieves because everybody at some point is going to experience loss. God gave you a wonderful gift in the person of someone that you loved, a parent, a spouse, a, a relative, a friend, whoever, and now that gift has been taken away. There's a gap, there's a, there's a hole, a separation that leaves you feeling empty. And the natural response is to mourn that emptiness. Unfortunately, there is a kind of Christianity that gives the impression that you know faith in Christ is going to exempt you from this kind of suffering, or that a real Christian, or more pointedly, a real man, doesn't need to grieve, doesn't need to shed a tear. That we shouldn't feel bad for the loss because the deceased person is now in a better place. There can be a tendency to try and disguise the harsh reality that death is a real thing and its shadow will cross all of our paths. I was talking to someone once who said in his family that he grew up in believing that you don't really deal with pain and loss by, you know, pouting and dwelling on it. You suck it up and you just keep going. His first experience with death was with his grandfather and it seemed like everything was dumb done to sort of numb the reality or the pain of death, minimize their loss. He walked for the first time into a funeral home. It was made to look up like a normal home, like a living room. The rooms inside looked like calming bedrooms to him. The casket resembled a fancy mahogany bed frame with a silky lined memory foam mattress inside. And there was his grandfather who lay there sleeping. He was dressed more nicely, looked uh, significantly better than the last time this man had seen him in the hospital. Even the funeral that followed focused on celebrating the grandfather's life rather than even mentioning his death or even acknowledging the brutal suffering that had preceded it. Consequently, this man said, I never really mourned. For some reason, our culture tends not to grieve very well because it hurts and we do our best to try and avoid things that hurt. But grief is a normal, natural and I'd say necessary response to loss because grieving such losses is important. It allows you to kind of free up energy, the energy that's kind of bound to that lost person or object or experience so that you can reinvest that energy elsewhere. Until we grieve effectively, we're likely to find a part of us kind of may, remains tied to the past. Grieving is not forgetting, nor is it like drowning in tears, but healthy grieving results in an ability to remember the importance of our loss, but with a renewed sense of, of peace and rather than an enduring pain. Grief is a life issue and a spiritual life issue that strikes at the very heart of being human. While we live in a body, we will love and we will lose. The effect of loss can be shocking and disorienting, and it needs a process of mourning or grieving so that you can come to terms with what has happened. When loss is not accompanied by some kind of process that allows us to both feel and express our emotions of despair, of vulnerability, disorientation, perhaps even relief. Let's be honest about that. Those emotions kind of go underground. That emotional energy has got to go somewhere, and if it's not expressed in healthy grief, then it comes out in other places as anger, as depression, as listlessness, and a host of other things. We may suppress our grief 
But out of sight is not out of mind. Those emotions will come back to haunt us if we do not somehow find a way to kind of accept the loss that has taken place. You know, many times as parents, we're guilty of trying to shield our children from some of the painful realities of life. I ran across this poem uh, by a mom who is doing thus just that. It's, it's R-rated in its original format, so I've edited it considerably, but you'll, you'll get the drift. Here's the poem. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand ill-advised ways that I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child is broken. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real rat's nest chirps on how about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. We all want to try and protect our children, but what we should do is prepare our children because they will face loss and grief at some point. For children, often death comes first in a pet or a baby bird that they find on the lawn or the goldfish who's just floating on the water. Having a little ritual helps cushion the pain of death. A little prayer for the goldfish as it takes its final swim around the toilet. <coughs> it's important to let children grieve. Rituals that address loss have been built into the religions of just about every corner of the world, whether it's a wailing wall or windows covered in black, ripped clothing, or even crying or hiring professional mourners to weep and wail. The need to grieve is recognized and encouraged in many religions. Many religions involve these rituals that are designed to trigger the grief process, but also to eventually mark its ending. Wearing black or a black armband are always ways of signaling to the world that life is different and the person has experienced a loss. They need some special consideration for a period of time. But we've lost so much of that. In our mobile modern culture where physical distance is often a part of families and communities, we have lost many of the common rituals of mourning that we used to follow. Though often we experience loss through death of a family member or friend, you know, we're all learning that there are many other ways to experience loss that can also trigger real grief. Being quarantined, missing your friends and the fellowship of your church family, drive-by graduations, weddings that have been postponed, family gatherings canceled, jobs lost, and the loss of income, the end of a relationship, being just cooped up in your home, a much-anticipated opportunity or life goal suddenly canceled, not being able to eat a meal at a restaurant or, or just go to the beach, things that we used to just take for granted. Going to college in the fall is going to carry with it some grief because it won't be, you know, as it should be. Someone you know is hospitalized with the COVID-19 or if you work as a healthcare responder, maybe you've just had to witness too much. Friends, there are so many things to grieve right now. And so life often feels heavy. These losses can leave us with a sense of being bewildered or disoriented because there's no funeral to acknowledge what was lost. There's no grave to visit. There's no covered dish dropped, by, uh, by, dropped off by a neighbor or your deacon. 
As someone has said recently, all these griefs, the griefs that we're experiencing, these losses lie in unmarked graves. Now Jesus understands our sense of loss. Isaiah tells us he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, 3. We see that played out when Jesus stood at the grave of his close friend Lazarus, and we read the shortest verse in the Bible, John 11:35, only two words, that Jesus wept. The presence and comfort of Jesus in the journey of bereavement is a treasured gift <clears throat> to us as believers. Countless people have told me that during their time of grief that they often felt carried by the presence of Christ, when they didn't think they, they, they had the strength to go on. That when they had to walk through their valley of the shadow of death, they sensed God's presence in special and unique ways. It's not something you can prepare for. It's not something you can desire. Loss is not something that anyone wants to have happen. But when it does happen, Christ meets us there and sustains us in ways that often transcend words. It is a treasured truth that Christ walks with his children in the valley of bereavement. But guess what? That is not what Jesus is speaking about here in the second beatitude. The mourning for which Christ promises divine comfort is a mourning over our sins with a godly sorrow. This is the godly sorrow that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 7.10, where he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Mourning can be blessed because it reproduces a repentance that leads to life. You probably all know about the natural sorrow of death. But what do you know about this kind of godly sorrow, this sorrow over our sins that is blessed? This is a subject that is of huge importance to the church today because American Christians have grown, have been kind of surrounded by a form of faith that's been so diluted, it's almost unrecognizable, so different what, from what Jesus is speaking about. Because we've kind of simplify things that say simply believing certain things, well, that's actually not going to change your life. Simply saying that you believe in Jesus, that doesn't really connect you to Christ in any meaningful way. Doesn't bind you to Jesus in a way where Christ can change you. Faith is the bond of a living union with Christ. And when Christ enters a life, he comes to forgive you and to make you holy. He accepts you as you are, but his grace will never leave you as you are. He accepts you as you are, but his grace will never leave you as you are. And one of the main tools in his transformation toolbox is helping you to mourn over your sins. You see, so many people will say, well, they've accepted Christ as their Savior, that they've asked Jesus into their hearts. And that's a real thing. Don't misunderstand me. But often they stop there. They stop there without ever really bowing to his lordship, his kingship over their lives. And so too many people who call themselves Christians end up with a form of faith that does not change anything about their lives. We need to mourn our sins to see transformation. Mourning our sins means seeing our behavior from God's point of view. It means recognizing how what we've done not only hurts us or others, but it actually hurts God. He grieves when we sin. When we mourn our sins, it means we have connected with God on more than just a rational kind of thinking level. We feel it. We feel our woundedness. We feel our rebellion. And like the first kind of grief, we should, we should not stuff those feelings away. They need to be expressed, expressed in prayer. Like so many of the Psalms, you know, there are seven Psalms 
that especially show this. They're called the, the penitential psalms because they all involve some remorse, some regret, some repentance over sin. For example, Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For night, day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You see, confession is good for the soul. Last week I said we should picture the Beatitudes as a series of eight rings and how swinging on the first ring is what gets you to the second. Swinging on that first ring of being poor in spirit, of humbly recognizing your spiritual poverty before God, that then leads you to the second ring, the kind of mourning that is blessed. This blessed mourning involves an acknowledgement of your true self, a turning to the Lord in true repentance, which then leads to a change of direction. The rest of the Beatitudes are actually the evidence of that change, a meekness that shows controlled strength, a hunger for what is right, a heart that's filled with mercy for others, a life that is marked by purity, a person who builds bridges of peace, those who aren't afraid of the problems that come along with being committed to Christ. These are the qualities that are built on the first two Beatitudes. If we are not able to own our sin before the Lord, if we're not able to mourn what it is that we have done to Him and to ourselves, we won't be able to progress down this road that Jesus wants us to walk. He accepts you as you are, but His grace will never leave you as you are. This kind of spiritual mourning is infused with hope. God's purpose for your life is not that you remain stuck in a cycle of you know, spiritual mourning and then the cycle of saying sorry and then repeating the same behavior. True mourning will break that cycle by bringing you to a place where you grieve over your sin, you see its cost, and you make a decisive break from it. A heartfelt sorrow that involves a change of direction powered by the Holy Spirit. And if you take that personal mourning for sin up a notch, well, then you get the third type of mourning, national lament or national repentance. There are a number of stories in the Old Testament where either Moses or the kings of Israel led the people in a time of national repentance and mourning. At significant turning points, at times when their sin threatened their future as, a, as the people of God, or at times when they were on the receiving end of God's judgment because they had not repented, they waited too long to turn to God, and then the consequences of their societal decay came crashing in. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible to, devoted to this kind of mourning. It's the book of Lamentations, where the prophet Jeremiah laments the decline of Israel and Judah in their captivity by the Babylonians. Lament, that is a great word that we don't often use very much. Many people are calling for a time of national lament right now over the sins of our past, over the consequences being experienced in the present. And I'm not sure where I really stand on that, because it's important to remember that we are not Israel. The United States is not God's chosen people. We are not a theocracy where God rules. And often the biblical verses used to call us to national repentance are really about ancient Israel, and they're not about the U.S. of A. Too often the call to national repentance has been used as just a political ploy, a tactic that actually has little to do with God. 
That's why Christian author C.S. Lewis was actually very opposed to the idea of any kind of national repentance, in England at least. He thought it actually let people off the hook because they were repenting for the sins of others, you know, from decades and centuries ago while actually ignoring their own current sins. He said that it's easy to repent for others because you avoid the bitter task of repenting for your own sins. Essayist Timothy uh, Rimple has labeled this phenomenon the false apology syndrome. The syndrome is dangerous, he says, because it allows us to feel good without having to be good. We get all the moral high ground that comes with confession, but none of the personal pain. And I quote, he says, if I can find it here, the habit of public apology for things for which one bears no personal responsibility changes the whole concept of a virtuous person from the one who exercises the discipline of virtue to one who expresses correct sentiment. The most virtuous person of all is he who expresses it loudest and to the most people. The end result is likely to be self-satisfaction and ruthlessness accompanied by unctuous moralizing rather than a determination to behave well. See, the most virtuous person, they can just pretend to be it that way. So I'm not sure about this idea of national mourning in our current situation. What do you think? What would Jesus want us to do? Knowing that we're a nation with Christian roots, yes, but also knowing we are not implicitly a Christian nation. We're not the God's people in the same way ancient Israel was. Maybe that would be a good topic of conversation this week. If you can listen, if you can keep it humble, if you're first able to mourn your own sins. The mission of Jesus as Redeemer is a comfort to those who mourn, who recognize how their sin hurts themselves and hurts God, whose mourning turns to repentance and to change. Writing hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah the prophet spoke of what this Redeemer would do when he finally came. Jesus actually quotes this passage in his very first public sermon, so it was very important to him as well. It's Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. Let me close with this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because he, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare now to come to the table, this table that reminds us of your suffering and of your sorrow, and how it was our sins that put you on that cross, Lord, help us to feel in our hearts, true remorse for our sin, Lord, and to name specific things where we know we have fallen away and where we have rejected or rebelled against you. Maybe they're besetting sins that are repetitive in our lives, Lord, and we need to make a final break from them. Could be other things, Lord, that have just popped up, but we, Lord, give us hearts, because we're spiritually poor, give us hearts that are ready to recognize where we need to repent and where we need to mourn and then freely receive the forgiveness that you offer to us and the oil of joy that you would pour over us, Lord. We thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.